Have a seat, please, this morning. We're going to continue in our series in John's Gospel. That you may believe. John said he wrote his Gospel, that you may believe. So I'm going to read a passage from where we're up to. And can I encourage you, does anyone actually have a Bible here? A real life pages Bible? Oh, awesome. We've got a couple. That's so good. Remember once upon a time, everybody walked in with an actual Bible. Now, most of you, can I get your phones out if you've got it on your phone? Because I'd like you to read along. It won't be on the screen. So if you're watching this at another time, I encourage you to get a Bible out. And we're in John chapter 12. And to follow the story where we've been, um, Jesus rode into Jerusalem as a king on a donkey. But the whole presentation of coming in that way signified that he was a king, that there was something significant, and the people acknowledged it. And there was people putting down jackets and clothing and palm branches as he came in. And he was riding in as a king, but also as the lamb for the Passover. And in Jeff's message last week or the week before he he mentioned that um, the day Jesus rode in was the day when you would go and select the lamb that you would sacrifice for the Passover later that week. So there's a lot of symbol, um, a lot of symbolism. I was going to say symbology, that's not even a word is it? There's a lot of symbolism going on there. Just before we get to today's passage, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who had sort of controlled the religion, were watching these people go after Jesus and acknowledge him as Messiah. And there's a passage in our scripture that says, the Pharisees talk and they said, the whole world has gone after him. What can we do? Looks like everybody is on board with who this Jesus guy is. Now, when they say everybody, we're going to find in today's passage that in their world, there's pretty much two groups of people. There was Jews and there was non-Jews. And so a word for non-Jews is Gentiles, but also used um, in the same way as Gentiles is Greeks. And we're going to see how that plays into today's passage. So we're going to start in verse 20 of chapter 12. I'm reading from the version and we're going to go down to verse 36. But follow along if you can. So some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. So Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless wheat is planted in the soil and dies, It remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honour anyone who serves me. Verse 27. Now deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. 
Then a voice spoke from heaven, saying, I have already brought glory to my name, and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to him. Then Jesus told them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time for judging this world has come, when Satan, the ruler of the world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. The crowd responded, we understood from scripture that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say the Son of Man will die? Just who is this Son of Man anyway? And Jesus replied, my light will shine for you. Just walk in the light while you can, so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness cannot see where they are going. Put your trust in the light while there is still time. Then you will become children of light. Now, I don't know about you in hearing that or maybe just reading that for the first time ever or the first time in a while. It doesn't make a lot of sense in some ways. It's, there's two key questions that Jesus is asked and he doesn't give a clear answer. He, he starts this discourse on something else that doesn't seem to answer the question. I, don't, I, I wish I had the time this week to check this fact, but I'm going to throw this out there as a maybe fact. Um, I have heard that out of all the questions Jesus is asked in the Gospel accounts, he only directly three times. Now, I don't know. Check it out for yourself, okay? Read the Gospels. He gets asked a question. Mostly, he will ask another question in response. But I've heard it's only three times that he actually gives a direct answer when he's asked something. And he doesn't do that here today. There's no direct answer. So what is he doing? So to start with, just verse 23... Um, so some Greek to Philip. Philip went to Andrew and Andrew and Philip went to Jesus and said, hey, there's some Greek people who want to meet with you. We are told that Philip is from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a town up on the top end of the Sea of Galilee, not far from the, the 10 Greek towns that were there, the Decapolis. Um, so maybe they knew Philip or maybe Philip was Greek and maybe that, that was their way in. But we do see Philip and Andrew in other stories, the ones who are the conduit between the people and Jesus. But either way, they get a mention. And so they come to Jesus and basically say, there's some Greek guys here who want to see you. And Jesus' response is, verse 23, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. That's not an answer. Can they come and see you or not? Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. Now, if you've been paying attention as we've journeyed through John's Gospel, Jesus has been saying up to this point, now is not the time. In chapter 2, when they ran out of wine at the wedding, Mary came to Jesus, oh, they've run out of wine. His response is, my time has not yet come. Why are you bothering me with this? In chapter 7, Jesus' brothers want him to go to Judea and do all his miracles so more people will believe. And his response is, my time has not come yet. Later in chapter 7, Jesus declared that he was sent from God and the Pharisees and religious leaders tried to seize him for saying such blasphemous things and they couldn't seize him because his time had not come yet. In chapter 8, he, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. 
And the Pharisees did not like that because, again, Jesus was aligning himself with God and they again tried to seize him, wanted to seize him, but they couldn't because John tells us his time had And now, so here's these Greek guys who want to come and meet with Jesus and his first thing he says is, my time has come. The time has come. And then he says this, verse 24, this will be on your screen. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. And those in this world are going to lose it. And those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honour anyone who serves me. He still has not answered the request, can they come and see him or not? And so now, as Jesus does really well, he takes an agricultural reality, principle, that anyone listening would be able to understand. And he said, a, a kernel, a seed, just on its own, while it's in your hand or while it's on your table or while it's sitting on a bench, is no good to anyone or anything. But the potential in that seed, if it is buried put to death, if it is buried, it's going to bring life. A simple just rule of nature that, that people would understand. And Jesus to himself, as we know, because we live on the other side of understanding how all this works, its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. In another version, this same verse, it says, but if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the Amplified Version, if it dies, it produces much grain, yields a harvest. So here's this principle of nature that Jesus is applying to himself. There is a death coming that's going to bring life. And it's more than a seed in the ground. What I love about this, so here's John talking about Jesus actually saying it. We can go back in Isaiah's writing about 700, 750 years before Jesus even found. And we read this in Isaiah 53. He writes, it's, this is what God has had in mind all along. To crush him with pain and the plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he would see life come from it. Life, life and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. So Isaiah was prophesying what was going to happen with the Messiah, that death would come, so that come. And then on the other side of Jesus doing this, we have Paul writing about it to the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 6, check this out. Paul writes, that is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. And when we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. And when we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace sovereign country. So again, there's this image of light and dark, which Jesus touches on in this passage we're in today. And there's this image of death and life. 
These images are right through John's Gospel. So we've got John recording what Jesus has said in today's passage. We've got Isaiah predicting it's going to happen. We've got Paul writing about the reality of it having happened and what it means for us. And so there's this thread right through Scripture where it says, when death comes, when we die to ourself, now Jesus was the first fruits of this, the first one to do it, but when we die to ourself, that's when we find true life. It's the paradox of the Christian life. You've got to give up your life to find it. When we die to self, that's when true life comes. And so he unpacks all this, and I reckon it's not until verse 32 that he even answers the request that came from Philip and Andrew about the Greek guys wanting to meet with him. So as we continue the passage, the time for judging this world has come when Satan and the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, so crucified and then resurrected, I will draw everyone to myself. Because remember, Jesus went first to the Jewish nation. The Messiah was going to come through the Jewish nation. And the Jewish nation were the first ones to have the opportunity to acknowledge Jesus for who he was, to accept him as the Messiah, which the Jewish nation had been waiting for for centuries. And most of the Jews at the time did not want a bar of it because Jesus did not look like the type of Messiah that they were expecting. They were not expecting a Messiah to die because that question in today's passage is even, hang on, we've read the scriptures, the Messiah doesn't die? What are you talking about? They were expecting Messiah to come in like King David, a military leader who's going to conquer, throw out the Roman Empire, take up, establish the kingdom of God again and Jesus was not looking like that. So, so many people were missing it but Jesus is saying pretty clearly here, once I am crucified and rise from the dead again, I'm going to draw all people to myself, not just Jewish people, but those Greek guys who are waiting to see me, they're going to be welcome as well. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is doing. But in this passage as well, verse 31, judgment and, and the judging of the world in this context comes from the, the looking at the death and resurrection of Jesus as a way of overcoming the way things seem to work. So Jesus is making a judgment on the way your culture works, the way society works, the way the pattern of the world currently works is not the way of the kingdom of God. And so there's judgment on that in terms of the judgment being, let me show you, currently doing just does not work. So the way of life that seemed to work in that day and age, and maybe there's reflections for us today, that it's the reign of power, it's violence, it's separation, you know, the elite controlling those who, who don't have a say in things. And we see that in our world today still. And Jesus is highlighting that that way, that system, will actually be shown to be ineffective, inferior, insufficient in the light of the reality of the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is upside down on everything that that seems to be the way we think things work. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to really have life, you've got to give your life up. If you want to really be the leader, you've got to serve others. Everything, just the, the complete opposite, counter everything else that seems to be the dominant pattern. 
And Jesus is displaying it in this passage and, and saying, you know, unless you give up your life, you're not going to find life. But if you try to hang on to your life where you are in control and you are the boss, you're eventually going to lose what life is all about, that eternal reality. It's pretty confronting stuff. And so Satan being cast out refers to the defeat of sin and death. Death were the power of the enemy. And the great enemies of all people, particularly death, the greatest and final enemy, has been overcome through the resurrection of Jesus because life is going to come from that. And isn't it funny that the instrument that was used to kill Jesus, the cross, 2,000 years later still is used as a symbol of, of hope, of peace, of life, when that was never the intention of it. When the, it wasn't the Romans who invented crucifixion, it was a group before them, probably the Assyrians or something like that, but the Romans perfected it. They got pretty good at it. But even that symbol of pain and torture and death became the symbol of life and hope. And so we continue, well, the crowd responded, here's this question, but we understood that the Messiah is going to live forever. How can you say the Son of Man will die? Who is this Son of Man anyway? And now I reckon here's the second question that Jesus does not answer clearly. The first question, can these guys come and see you? He's gone on this whole sideways detour of unpacking life and death and resurrection and all these things and giving up your life to land eventually with them lifted up. People will be able to come to me. He finally got there. And we got this other question, who is this son of man anyway? And Jesus' reply is this, my light will shine for you just a little longer. Walk in the light while you can so the darkness won't overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness cannot see where they're going. Put your trust in the light while there's still time. Then you will become children of the light. A major theme of John's light and dark. Even in his letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, particularly 1 John, big themes of light and darkness. And he's, Jesus is re responding with that again. So who is this son of man? And he talks about being the light. Does it take you back to John chapter 1? Hopefully it does, because I reckon that was the author's intention. John, when he started talking about the light has come into the world, but the world has not recognised it. The world preferred darkness, but the light has come. And that was an echo right back to Genesis chapter 1. The earth was dark and formless and God said, let there be light. And we know from the rest of scripture that Jesus was the creative agent in all of that creation. Light came then, order out of the chaos. Jesus is the light of the world. And this theme keeps coming through. So they're, they're saying, well, well, who is the Messiah? What's the Messiah supposed to do? And Jesus is pointing back to himself with this slightly obscure answer about light and darkness. In the message translation, Jesus says in the same passage, as you, as you have the light, believe in the light, then within you and shining through your lives. 
but we can only be the light and have the light shining in and through us if we do the thing he had just unpacked, which is what? Give up your life. Give up your life. So you've got the question in your mind right now that I've had as I've been unpacking this, and and the question is, how do we do that? How do you give up your life? Die to yourself. And the answer is, What's the answer? How do we die to ourselves? It's not a one-off decision. It's a moment-by-moment posture, decision. And the thing that came to mind for me, you know those old Western movies, the gunslingers, and you get someone sneak up behind one of the other guys with the gun, and you go, stick him up, points the gun in his back. And the guy puts his hands up. What does what, what that posture represent, the hands up? Surrender, yeah. It's a surrendered posture to say, because when you are in that surrendered posture and the guy's got the gun in the back, guess who makes the decision you do? It's not you with your hands in the air. It's the guy with the gun. Now, I'm not suggesting Jesus has a gun in your back. It's just an analogy and all analogies fall apart somewhere. But it's that surrendered posture to go, God, my life is not not mine, it's yours. So what do you want to do with me in this moment? Because I reckon we can't can't bite off more than we can chew. I I can't honestly go, God, what do you want to do with me for the rest of my life? Because at some stage later today, I'll want to do what I want to do. So it's that surrendered posture. I can't move past that. You might think of something a lot more theological and brilliant. But how do we die to ourselves? How do we give up our life? In my thinking, it's, it's having posture to say, Jesus, this is your life in this body. What do you want to do? And I reckon the more we do that, the more we will hear clearly from from God through his indwelling spirit, through the written word that gives us the direction and the motivation and the ability to be obedient to what he's calling us to do. Yeah, the, the first place to start is just looking at some scripture. There's a lot of instruction in scripture on what, how to live life, how to live life with God, how to live life with others. There's lots of instruction there. Just look at Paul's writings. There's so much instruction about the one another's. How do we do life together in community? The things we should do, the things we should not do. It's pretty clear. So I reckon for me, beyond even that surrendered posture is just a willingness to be obedient. Obedient to the stuff we already know to be true how to treat one another, how to respond to one another, how to speak, how to not speak, how to react, how to not react, how to give, how to serve, how to be generous, how to be hospitable. All those things are clearly, clearly put out in Scripture. If we could just start, if I could just start with being obedient to that stuff, that's a great, great position to be working from. Be able to, moment by moment, day by day, surrender to say, God, what do you want to do with me today? 
Who do you want me to engage with? How do you want me to respond? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? When do I need to shut up? Whatever it looks like. And so I love this picture. When I first read this passage, and I don't know who gave me this passage to preach on. It's probably me. I didn't think about that too clearly, did I? But I, 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 in all honesty, I first thought, I went, oh, what, do, what do I do with that? Yeah, so these, these two questions with obscure answers and oh, I don't know. But God has a way of showing me what he needs to show me and it is, it's about a surrendered life. And a surrendered life comes through to the stuff we already know, the stuff that's already clear. So that's my hope going forward, that I can become more obedient to the stuff I'm already aware of that I can become more willing to have a posture of being surrendered so it's not about me. It's actually about him in me and through me. And that would be my hope for me. That would be my hope for you. That would be my hope for us. That we be people who, who die to ourselves so that Christ can live in us and through us. Let me pray for us as we consider that. So God, I thank you that you give us your word, your written word, and that as we engage with it, as your Holy Spirit illuminates it and brings revelation through it, that we can get some of what it means to live with you, what it means to live in you. And my hope and my prayer for us as your church community here on the Central Coast is that we would become a people, more than we've ever been, a people who represent you, who are willing to die to ourselves so that you would live and you would be visible and you would be tangible to the people around us. And as I've shared, God, it's not, I don't think it's a one-off decision. It's a moment-by-moment posture and a moment-by-moment decision to to actually live out what, what you taught us to pray, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that your will would be done in my life as you desire it to be. So would you help us in that? We need your help. And may we be a people who can help one another, the people you see us to be. Amen.